I'm Noel Holzman, and this is Open Concept from Yahoo Finance. As a leader right now, what kind of future do you want to build? You know, do you want to build a company that just replays all of these different types of social inequality? Or do you want to, you know, take a stand and actually say that, you know, within these four walls, in this thing that I'm going to build, um, I can do this differently? Diversity and inclusion are buzzwords in the business world. But many experts say Canada's tech scene has a long way to go in that department. That's what a company called Feminuity is trying to solve. Hi, my name is Sarah Saska, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Feminuity. Feminuity does long-term research projects for companies around the world to help them become more diverse and inclusive. Today, I speak to Sarah about the path that led her to this work, how diversity can boost companies' bottom lines, why she thinks Canada is lagging behind the states, and her advice for business leaders. Sarah, thank you so much for coming today. We're really pleased to have you here. Um, can we start off telling us about Feminuity? What, what do you do? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we get it a lot. <laughs> um, so we work to embed diversity and inclusion into the absolute core um, of our clients' businesses, so into their actual business operations. So my co-founder, uh, Dr. Andrea Rowe, we both come from academia. So for us, we wanted to make sure that you know, the way that we were doing this work was you know, really, really rigorous and intensive. Um, so our approach has always been to use evidence-based research, and we pair that with um, you know, a whole scope of different types of industry expertise. Where was the sort of origins of, of that sort of sensibility or determination for you? So for me, um, it very much came out and became really explicit while I was doing my PhD. Um, so I've always sort of played at the different intersections of sort of business and social justice writ large. You know, so in undergrad, I was at Queen's doing commerce, but I was also do- taking gender studies. So I was studying everything from, you know, disability studies to gender studies to masculinity studies, queer theory, trans theory, all of these sort of pieces. And so during, during in the middle of my PhD, when I was sort of building out this really sort of practical body of research, um, one of the things that was most striking to me um, was that in the automotive industry, and I think this is still true to this day, although this was a few years ago now, um, car accidents are the leading cause of death related to maternal trauma. So the translation is that when someone who is pregnant gets into a car crash, there's a really high likelihood that they'll lose their unborn fetus. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is because in the automotive industry, uh, for so long, um, historically, they've always used male-bodied crash test dummies as sort of like the default or the norm when doing all of their crash test safety testing. So this means that, you know, a diversity of shapes and sizes of bodies and pregnant bodies in particular are, you know, more at risk in vehicles. When you were growing up, did you sort of think, okay, well, there's business and then there's social justice and I'm kind of equally interested in both? How did that come about? Yeah, so I think for me, I was raised by very feminist parents. So I was the kid who had a really long hyphenated last name um, because my mom kept her maiden name in the 60s. I only go by one of those names now. And what does it mean to be raised by feminist parents? It means a lot of things. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch Disney movies. I wasn't allowed to eat at McDonald's. You know, a lot of like deeply anti-capitalist sort of lenses were really embedded into some of that. Okay. Um, My mom not wanting me to be exposed to sort of this, uh, you know, Disney fairy tale uh, narrative through you know movies like at that time Disney was a bit more on that tip so yeah 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 
Um, but, so when I was a when I was pretty young, my dad died around six of cancer, and his um, his sort of dream was to sort of become a really prominent human rights lawyer. And I think for me, after my dad died, I, I got this idea that I was going to sort of build out his dream. So from like age six onwards, I was going to be a human rights lawyer and that was it. So I kind of did everything um, with the mindset that that's where I was going. Um, and so I wanted to sort of, you know, prepare myself accordingly. And somehow along the way, I found myself, you know, in, in business and policy kind of work, but then also at the intersection of social justice, sort of writ large. Um, but I guess when faced with the decision of whether I actually want to go to law school, I realized that law wasn't the way I wanted to actually bring value to the world. So I went in a bit of a different direction, but uh, I think it got me to the same place. Was it an epiphany or a particular moment when you looked around? Maybe it was looking around at a Queen's Commerce class um, and thought, okay, there's uh, diversity is a, a challenge here. I think it was really during grad school when okay. I was um, doing all of the research sort of at the intersection of innovation and diversity sort of writ large um, that, you know, once I really understood what was going on in the autom automotive industry, um, I started to unravel and look at different industries. And it became clear that, you know, that deep-seated gender bias in the automotive industry was playing out in different ways across all sectors and industries. I think for me, it became really important to figure out how I was going to translate the research that I was doing in grad school into sort of this practical application, you know, like to bring the real-world utility to this work. The example of the seatbelts is very much like they did this, and as a consequence, um, it had negative outcomes. Uh, and then the flip side of that is if you bake in diversity and inclusion, you're going to have positive outcomes. Um, can you speak to some of what are the most sort of evident or obvious positive outcomes? Yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about the automotive industry, a really or cool anything. example, um, I think it was around 2001 or so, there was this rogue team of women at Volvo who ended up designing what's called the Your Concept Car. Um, and so this this group of women, I think to date at that point, they hadn't tested a lot or done a lot of design work um, with women in the automotive industry. Um, so this group of women made a point to actually bring in different women to design and test with. And one of the coolest pieces that came out of this, your concept car, was keyless car entry. So they worked with, um, you know, women and they found that women, you know, needed their hands, you know, when they came up to their car at night, perhaps, you know, perhaps they had a child in one hand or groceries or, you know, their briefcase or whatever it may be. And they wanted to, you know, access their cars more easily, more quickly. And so that's where keyless car entry was actually designed and developed. And right now that's been scaled across um, to most companies as sort of the norm, the standard. When a company reaches out to you, what is the process of engaging with them? Do you do you start off doing an audit? So I guess like the the blue sky or the moonshot um, example with how we sort of manage an assessment when we we meet a new client is very much um, to do something a full sort of a full three sixty like a really comprehensive analysis of the organization. So we're looking to you know find areas of deep seated bias, to find areas of inequality, inequity. Um, or to unearth different parts of toxic culture, um, most often within companies. Um, so we'll use a quantitative surveying tool to sort of capture their demographic data and some of their sentiments, and we'll pair all of that quantitative data and sort of use the insights from that to really uh, do a full series of qualitative interviews. So 
in our perfect world, and we have done this in the past, we'll spend up to six months living and breathing within a company, um, interviewing up to you know a quarter of their of their employees across all levels of the organization. Um, and from there, we'll we'll do a really big deep dive into you know their communications, their internal comms, or their external comms. We'll do a discourse analysis of all of their existing policies, looking at it you know to find out where inequity sort of built in or baked into different policies. Um, and we'll also do sort of an ethnographic um, assessment of their physical space or their digital working space, you know, to see if it meets the needs of you know accessibility requirements, if it's you know if it's good and healthy for the people who you know are working within their companies. Um, so we'll bring sort of that full, full um, data collection together, um, and then we'll sort of give a client back, you know, here's here's what we found, here's where we think you're at. Um, so that's sort of like our assessment process. What is typically the catalyst for I- I embarking on that process from a company perspective? When they reach out to you, what are they saying? So it really depends on sort of what, what country or climate or context we're talking about. Um, I say in the Canadian context right now, It's often um, someone who cares deeply about issues of diversity, inclusion, and equity, and accessibility, who has been sort of pushing their, you know, their executives, their C-suite to to care about this, and maybe have gotten just a little bit of buy-in. So they they come to us and say, you know, what can you do with this budget, or what could you do with this, you know, very particular problem? Um, Or sometimes it's a CEO who, you know, feels this work is the right thing to do, or perhaps has maybe been backed into a corner because of you know some bad behavior or business practices within the organization. Um, it's really a mixed bag um, that that comes to us. Yeah. And and this may not uh, afford an easy answer, but is there a hierarchy of uh, challenges? There's obviously there's gender, there's sexual orientation, there's um, ethnicity, mm-hmm. there's uh, accessibility issues like. Do you sort of stack rank them or from your perspective, are they all equal? Yeah. So in the Canadian ecosystem right now, I think there's this sort of common uh, mistake that a lot of folks are are making. Um, And it's often that they they feel that the word diversity necessarily translates to mean women. So that tends to be the sort of first place that a lot of organizations start. Um, For some, it's sort of like the low-hanging fruit, the more sort of palatable place to start. But uh, we know that a sort of a women first, say, approach to this work, you know, only tackling issues of, you know, executive women in your organization or, or you know, the women, the technical women within your organization first, um, we know that doesn't work well. So we'll certainly tackle issues that are really sort of burning and, you know, causing a lot of harm, um, which, you know, sometimes may mean, you know, helping, you know, executive, a member um, find their way out of that company. Um, we'll identify someone who, you know, there's been a lot of complaints around sexual harassment or something like that. Like those would be, you know, fires that we would need to put out immediately. Um, but otherwise, one of the, the critical pieces around this work is that you can't actually privilege one group over another. It's about actually working to sort of meet the needs of, you know, the full group in all its complexity um, in a sort of a slow incremental process. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. But I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the company's name is Feminuity, yes. which you've undoubtedly heard a million times and yeah. and you and the co-founder are both white women mm-hmm. uh, of presumably some privilege mm-hmm. or uh, educational affluence. Yeah. Um, does that create credibility issues? So what do you mean credibility issues? 
Well, if you're speaking or providing recommendations yeah. as it pertains to uh, the diversity around um, ethnicities mm -hmm. and, and people of color within a workplace, um, that's not your experience, right? Yeah. Um, so there's so many pieces of yes. what you've just said that I just want to like uh, tackle and, and sort of unthread. Um, so the first piece is around our name. So femininity, when we first, we, we, we do hear this a lot. Um, so for us, the, the name came from the idea of, you know, feminist principles, um, which for us, feminism is, you know, um, is, is a movement, is a set of principles and ways of doing and being that are grounded in, you know, anti-sexism, anti-racism, anti-classism, and so much more. So in that sense, um, our, our approach, our, our brand, our version of feminism is about equity for all people, and it brings all people forward. So it's not a gender first sort of per way of doing and being. Um, and so we paired um, the word feminist with ingenuity right we you know wrapped up around innovation and all those things um so i think the reason folks assume that we're you know very gender first or, or women first um as an organization is because of sort of a branding problem with feminism writ large right the sort of white liberal feminist rhetoric has gotten in the way of some of what i would define feminism to to do and and mean if that makes sense. It, it does. And I would yeah. think particularly in the Canadian context, because yeah. it has been the debate in Canada has raged for years around yeah. uh, what is feminism, who defines feminism yeah. um, and how should it be interpreted? And obviously it's not uh, homogenous. There's uh, there's lots of strands and in interpretations. So it's interesting to to hear what yours is. And so for us, all the, the way we approach our work, yes, it's always very evidence-based. Like Andrea and I um, and our full team, we bring a sort of a wealth of different experiences around, um, around these, this work, um, but everything that we do is deeply intersectional. Right. So that means, you know, we're not sort of privileging one thing like a woman first approach yes. in our work. Yeah. So we actually, yeah, we have to work against this conversation all the time. In, in terms of then some of the recommendations that that you would present, uh, you refer to the communications, internal communications, and policies, and presumably hiring. Are there some sort of immediate low-hanging fruit that you can typically identify, and then some things that are a bit more systemic that are harder to get at? Can Can you talk a bit a bit about the continuum of solutions that you typically put forward? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I think. Some of the most thoughtful leaders um, in the North American, say, tech ecosystem right now, the big thing that they're focused on is recruitment. So everyone's very much focused on making sure that they have sort of a diverse, uh, like a really thoughtful, intentional recruitment process so that they're bringing in a really diverse um, talent pool, um, which is great, right? But the other side of it, so to answer your question, that's that's a low-hanging fruit, I'd say, uh, tackling the recruitment piece. Um, it's about putting some, you know, structural policies and some practices in place, and it's very doable. Um, but we're, what we're not seeing organizations do, and what is far more complex, is, you know, what happens once you get those people in the door, right? What are you doing to actually build a culture where people feel that they can belong and be the, their authentic selves and, you know, really, really, really thrive? Um, so unwinding complexity in, in, in culture, especially in tech, is it's, it's a very like, slow-moving um, kind of incremental process. So, you know, the low-hanging fruit is something like a recruitment strategy, but the, you know, the real problems tend to be around culture. 
Um, and like the Tech Lever study, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, so the Kapoor Institute came out with this um, over a year ago at this point. So they quantified that you know, there's many reasons why people leave um, roles in, in the tech ecosystem, you know, including, you know, better comp, wanting to be closer to work, what have you. But the number one reason, and this is true across all demographic uh, identities, is that people leave, leave organizations because of discrimination or, you know, not feeling comfortable with, within a company culture. And so that study has quantified sort of this retention piece, this churn piece in in tech to be a $16 billion problem annually. And that's just in the U.S. tech ecosystem, right? We don't have numbers for what that looks like in Canada yet. In the Canadian context, though, I would have thought the tech sector would be somewhat ahead in so much that it skews higher education. There's a real focus on innovation. The companies haven't been around, typically speaking, for very long. So the playbook isn't as entrenched. But the sort of systemic issues that you're addressing, do you find them as pertinent in Canada as elsewhere? So I think the Canadian tech ecosystem in particular is really fascinating. So when we first launched Feminuity, there was no conversation around this in the sort of tech community, um, you know, five, six years ago. And in fact, we were, you know, people were wondering what the heck we were doing. You know, parents, family members, supervisors were like, are you sure you want to build out this company that doesn't make any sense to us right now? Um, Our clients were international. Right. Our first our first client was the, uh, the Vietnamese government and we were working in garment manufacturing in Sri Lanka and in the Chinese tech ecosystem and in the U.S. in the Valley. Um, and that was all great. And now that we've sort of made a more intentional focus on the Canadian tech ecosystem, what's really interesting is that there's a whole slew of problems going on. And I think the reason we don't know about this is because until recently, until a few weeks ago, when um, the tech for all study came out, so it was a partnership that we did with Mars Discovery District and Forte.ai, um, we didn't have many numbers to really talk, like to, to figure out what was going on in the Canadian tech ecosystem. Um, so what, what is going on? What are you referring to? Still today, we don't have enough of, we don't have the proper benchmarking that we need in the Canadian tech ecosystem. We're working on it. We just have sort of a glimpse into that, I think. Um, but I can tell you from all of the different clients that we work with, And I think there's sort of just a general tone that there's this assumption that because Canada is such a like a demographically diverse country that we don't actually need to do this work. Right. The assumption is that being a demographically diverse country um, necessarily translates into industry and in particular into places like tech. So the U.S. ecosystem, um, in terms of diversity and inclusion work, um, is, is far ahead of Canada in this regard. Right. So this comes out of, you know. The U.S. has a d- different history than Canada, right? You know, post-civil rights, all of those things. The diversity inclusion efforts in the U.S. in sort of corporate America um, became a much more formalized much earlier on. Um, whereas in Canada, you know, we we don't acknowledge our complex history um, in the same way, uh, I would argue. Um, so we're still sort of in denial of some of, I think, the problems or the things that are going on. As we pertain to like a Canadian, say, this startup scene, like what mm-hmm. specifically is the diversity challenge? Is it around gender primarily? Is it around sexual orientation? Like where is the, the real problem? I don't think there's one real specific problem. I think it's just a, like a mix of a whole bunch. I think one of the greatest gaps in the Canadian tech ecosystem right now is, you know, the lack of Indigenous Canadians who are part of it. We, with the Tech for All white paper um, that we worked on with Mars, we couldn't even get a sufficient sample of Indigenous Canadians to be able to even comment on their experiences 
in the ecosystem, right? And so that's that's reflective of, you know, much more broader kind of issues, systemic issues within Canada sort of generally, I think. When we're talking about, say, tech, because yeah. that, of course, is, is an area where there's a lot of interest and a, a flood of investment. If there's one problem to solve specifically, mm-hmm. can you identify what that would be? Yeah, I think it's it's getting over this sort of polite discrimination, this sort of passivity we have around owning, you know, our history, um, and actually realizing that we need to invest in this work in a meaningful way, in the same way that you know our neighbors to the south do. Huh. Um, U.S. companies, I'd say like across corporate America, but definitely in tech, are putting their money where their mouth is, right? They have chief diversity officers or related roles and fully embedded teams working on these issues across their companies. So Canada needs to start investing in this work really intentionally, right? We say that diversity is our strength and we repeat this and scream this off the rooftop, but I would argue that diversity can only be our strength in the Canadian tech ecosystem if we're actually actively designing for it, like deliberately and intentionally, right? We can't just assume it's going to happen out of thin air. The issue of passivity, can you talk more about what that passivity means in the Canadian context? Yeah, well, I think a good example, you know, in the U.S., um, sort of the history of, of slavery is is very much understood by, I think, the most average person. What, you know, how deeply they really understand it is a different question. Um, but there is a lot of unawareness um, around, you know, the experience of Indigenous Canadians in the Canadian space. You know, we were watching the news in the U.S. with horror, right, um, as, you know, ICE was separating children at the U.S. border. But we have more kids um, in Canada, Indigenous children in foster care now than we actually had in residential schools once upon a time, right? So things aren't better here, yet, you know, we see the problem as being elsewhere. How is that corporate Canada's responsibility to solve? Well, I think that if, if we're starting to see power reshift and, you know, tech take on a lot more power in a lot of really interesting ways, I think it's a good time to ask some really important questions, right? As a leader right now, what kind of future do you want to build? You know, do you want to build a company that just replays all of these different types of social inequality? Or do you want to, you know, take a stand and actually say that, you know, within these four walls, in this thing that I'm going to build, um, I can do this differently? I'm speaking with Sarah Saska, CEO of Feminuity. Next up, how the Me Too movement has changed her job and what she thinks of public displays of inclusion. It's hard to look at the U.S. right now as a role model for many things. But as it pertains to a corporate climate, is it the U.S. that's sort of furthest ahead or is it, you know, Sweden or Denmark or where or Argentina where do you where do you look for inspiration in terms of uh, either corporate culture or government policy that has really embraced and enshrined these things yeah I mean so the U.S. is doing certain things right I mean certainly the racial inequality piece is top of their agenda Um, but if you look to some of the you know European countries like Sweden um, they've done a great job around the gender piece in particular but perhaps not so much say on the the race side, right? It, you know, it's a, those are a lot of fairly homogenous sort of societies that don't bring sort of that full deep diversity lens. So I think right now in Canada, we have that opportunity, right, to to sort of define what we mean by diversity for real, right? You know, that's everything from, you know, neurodiversity, right, folks on the autism spectrum through to physical diversity, through 
to, yes, gender and race and class and all of these different dimensions. Um, so I don't think there's a, you know, a forerunner to, or a model to really be looking up to. So that's why I think I'm so hard on the Canadian tech ecosystem right now because I think it's an opportunity for us to really do something good here and to be sort of a global model in this regard. The Me Too movement, how has that shifted either a company's awareness or some of the recommendations that you now make? Yeah, so Me Too, it's been, so we're just over a year out, right, from when it all kind of started at this point. I think what what it's done is it it's sort of raised a lot of foundational questions, right? So I have, you know, men-identified leaders calling me and asking me things like, you know, can I close a door when my administrative assistant, who happens to be a woman, is in the room? Or, you know, can I still hug that same person on their birthday? Um, but on the same token, I have, you know, women-identified leaders calling me and asking me, you know, I had this experience and I can't, I don't know, something felt weird. Like they're, they're asking me like whether they're, you know, them feeling strange in, in a particular experience is valid or not. Like they're trying to work through it. Um, so I think we're at this really interesting moment, right? We've socialized, you know, especially in Western North American culture, we socialized um, women to cater to men's feelings. And then we socialized men to feel entitled to women's time, attention, energy, all of these things. And so because of the socialization, we've created a lot of gray, right? And we're seeing this sort of gray play out in real time in workplaces right now in really complicated ways. I, I think it just shows that um, there's sort of a, been a bit of a power shift and we, we, we need to re-socialize men and women alike on sort of how to interact in some of the most basic ways, um, particularly in a professional context. A lot of times uh, companies will embark on very sort of PR seeming exercises uh, that uh, can play to the stakeholders and their uh, uh, their customers, but don't necessarily get to the to the root of the issue. How do you feel about those sort of more sort of public displays? I mean, they do raise awareness. Yeah, I think you know too often we see companies well they'll come to us and ask you know if they can do sort of do an unconscious bias training. Um, and so we dig a little deeper to try to understand, you know, is this part of, you know, a fulsome strategy? Um, what else, what will come before um, that training? What will come after, you know? Um, and usually the answer is nothing. Um, so all of the research shows us that one-off trainings tend to have uh, a neutral, if not negative effect, right? You need to give people um, clear ways of moving forward with that information, right? Whether that's, you know, a shift in policy in terms of business practice, um, operationally, whatever it may be. Is there not benefits associated with being very public around a particular initiative? I, I sort of think of like companies uh, around pride, as an example, yeah. or even, um, you know, various uh, multicultural festivals. And you'll see certain corporations, TD Bank is one mm -hmm. that comes to mind as being very visible. Yeah. If you're a stakeholder, if you're a customer, if you're an employee, you do see your company being very visibly aligned with it, with an initiative. Yeah, and, and and that's awesome. So long as on the back end, you know, yeah. if you're an organization and you're um, very visibly investing in in pride, as an example, that's great. So long as you know the queer population within your company feels it's authentic. So long as they're actually you know happy and feel like they belong within your organization and are being promoted at you know equal rates and all those things, right? So long as your back end is good, you can scream it off the rooftop. But the problem too often is that organizations do one thing and then they're so they're very quick to to sort of scream about it. 
Yeah. Right. So when we work with companies, we don't encourage them to sort of talk about the work that we're doing um, for some time. Sometimes that's maybe a year or more. Right. We don't encourage them to sort of reflect their diversity statement or any of those things um, publicly until they've just taken some time and actually done the work. Right. They need to get everything good under the hood before they should be talking about what they're really doing. If you were in front of a a tech CEO or a bank CEO in Canada today, what is the one or two pieces of advice that that you would give them as a as a a Q1 goal? Like do do this. Yeah, um, I think (laughs) at a really high level, um, stop saying that this work is sort of the right thing to do. Um, I think that really undermines its progress. Right, we're living in wild times in this 21st century with all this complexity. Um, And this work is actually probably, well, I think this work is sort of the key to unlocking human potential in so many ways. So, you know, thinking, calling it, referring it to as the right thing to do or, you know, something that's sort of cute or tokenistic or went off um, is just not going to cut it anymore. So are you are you saying that they're suggesting it's the right thing to do in the absence of actually doing it? Sometimes or or saying that it's the right thing to do means somehow they don't get down to the fact that actually this is just core to good business in the 21st century. This is the only way that you're going to be resilient into 2018 and beyond. What is the one thing that they should do? Yeah, I think they need to understand that this work needs to be done in a really as a really comprehensive strategy. It can't be done in one-off ways or sort of small token ways. Um, and it also can't be something that is just sort of relegated to your HR or your people leader, right? This work is highly technical. It's laborious. It requires a very specialized skill set, uh, very different than what an HR or people leader is trained to have. So you need to hire a professional and take it seriously and make this a really fulsome approach that you're sort of committed to for the long haul. Sarah, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your candor and thoughtfulness. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was my interview with Sarah Saska, co-founder and CEO of Feminuity. That's it for Open Concept this week. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Yahoo Finance CA and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was edited by Laura Howells. Our podcast producer is Ali Jaynes. I'm Noel Holzman, and I'll see you next week. 